Welcome to another episode of Esoteric Artifacts. I'm Subash. This is my co-host, Glenn. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Federal Reserve's recent policy actions, as well as some of the global supply chain impacts that we've seen. As many of you already know, we were in a bit of a global supply chain crisis prior to this Russia-Ukraine conflict. But we want to talk especially about what has changed since this conflict began and what areas are impacted globally. Russia and Ukraine collectively account for a pretty large portion of production globally, especially with regards to food and um, certain mining and energy. And all three of those are important categories. Um, Russia and Ukraine uh, together make up 30% of global corn production, which, you know, corn is used as a, as a product in so much processed food. And this is why it's such an impactful product um, to have any kind of shortage of. Um, but on top of that, they also account for a very large uh, proportion of global um, wheat and barley. Excuse me, I actually misspoke. Um, it is not 30% of corn. It is 30% of wheat and barley production globally, which is arguably more important than corn. Um, but it is a large uh, percentage of global corn production as well uh, as sunflower oil, soybean, um, not soybean oil. There was another oil. Canola. Canola oil. That's but, right. But yeah, canola oil. And I mean, these are... These are sort of staple foods that really everybody can use. And, you know, not only people eat these in a wide variety of processed foods, but it's also commonly used as, you know, feed for livestock. Mm -hmm. And like we're talking about with oils, there's just so many applications for these. And between Russia and Ukraine, like you're saying, like they produce such a large percentage of the world's usage of these actual crops and resources. So the impact that this is going to have on the global market is, you know, quite large and far reaching when you actually start to think about it. And I mean, in particular, us here in the U.S., we're very fortunate in that we have such a large mass of land with such varied agricultural availability. I mean, you know, in Florida and California, we can grow, you know, oranges and tropical fruits, whereas in the Midwest in the U.S., like there's a lot of corn and wheat and soybean production as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from the U.S. standpoint, there's actually a wide variety that we have, you know, self-sufficiency in yes. that will definitely feel the impacts of this effects on the global market, especially in the prices. But it's not like we'll have to do without corn for, you know, months or years as this progresses going forward. Yeah. And there there are other impacts that we may see, uh, especially in terms of like meat production um, and dairy, certain dairy production has taken like some serious hits in the United States in particular. And those products are affected by a wide range of issues, not just, you know, that, ranging from fertilizer price increases to labor shortages in terms of who is working in these slaughterhouses and in these uh, processing uh, facilities. Um, some of that has been going on for two years now um, since, you know, the pandemic began with uh, just. Uh, some of the m early major outbreaks uh, during the pandemic occurred in food processing facilities. And uh, that one month, two month period was enough to stagger that production. And, we, you know, if you have that sort of situation in a otherwise smooth system that is kind of operating at optimum efficiency, which is typically how we try to operate things, you have uh, major shortfalls that are often not materialized for months to years to come. Yeah. And I mean, particularly over these past like two years, like, I mean, like you're saying, there's this definite 
you know, couple months initially where it was, you know, effectively stalled, if not stopped completely in some respects. And then it didn't really ramp up immediately either, you know, as we had our own, you know, pandemic restrictions and other nations around the world have been handling that, you know, in their own ways. Like you don't have that immediate return to pre-pandemic production very quickly. Like that has to be scaled up slowly over time. Absolutely. So as you've probably already noticed by now, your prices at the grocery store are higher, but we should not see any extreme shortages or lack of availability of any of the food products that we typically consume. Some of the seasonally, uh, some of the out of season available uh, foods, I should say, um, that you typically have access to uh, that are imported. Those are goods that you may see uh, not be hitting your store shelves for some time. But again, we want to talk about how this impact is a far more global impact and regions that are closer in proximity to and rely on these imported goods typically from Russia and from Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, in particular, like areas such as the Middle East and some areas in Africa where like, you know, like we were talking about before with Egypt, like Mm -hmm. Egypt is not a place that's, you know, very fertile at large. I mean, they do have the Nile River and there are a lot of places where they can produce agriculture. Mm -hmm. But just due, due to their location and geography, it's very difficult for them to have as wide a variety of self-sufficiency as places like the United States or Great Britain. And I believe uh, food price and or just inflation on a broader scale was one of the larger catalysts in the Arab Spring uh, as well. And typically, food price increases in particular correlate with political instability in some of these poorer countries especially. It means regime change because people only tolerate going hungry for so long before they demand change uh, in their locales. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the most uh, important aspects as far as the general populace goes. I mean, everybody needs food to eat. And the more difficult it becomes for, you know, working class or average citizens to actually be able to acquire that, the more, you know, rightfully upset but also just engaged in what's going on at a political level at you know more of the corporate levels and just being involved in how do we fix this and change this if you can't put food on the table there's no reason for you to go to work yeah and i I mean it's it's definitely worth considering from our perspective we have not most americans in our lifetimes have not experienced any any major lack of food um, I, I'm not obviously there are people in this country that experience food insecurity of sorts, but by and large, our population has not experienced that. And it's very hard to contextualize the fact that our entire civil society is kind of built on this fact that everyone has most of their core needs uh, taken care of or at, le- at the very least available to some degree. Yeah, I mean, particularly here in the United States and, you know, in many of the European nations, I'd almost argue all of them at some on some level have these welfare systems in place so that, you know, those families or individuals who, you know, have this food insecurity issue or, you know, some other financial related dilemma regarding food or shelter, like there are systems in place in order to try and alleviate and assist with that. And obviously those kinds of things ramp up, especially in high inflationary periods or, you know, global shortages. But in places like, you know, Sudan and Africa, And we're not really sure how this is going to affect places like Afghanistan, which has very recently undergone a regime change. 
And so like these areas in particular are going to hit, be hit quite hard and, you know, almost the entirety of their population will feel this on some level. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a really a humanitarian crisis that extends far beyond Ukraine's borders. When you consider the ramifications of this, these food shortages, it's definitely going to be a crisis and it's, you know, it is important to consider that and to, for us to try to do what we can to alleviate, uh, you know, this, this concern. But the challenging thing is that all, all countries are going to feel this pain to some degree, even wealthy Western nations. And those are the types of situations where humanitarian aid and uh, other, you know, any assistance that we would typically be offering to our neighbors and uh, to uh, even, you know, countries that are nowhere near us geographically. Uh, those are the times when that, that type of aid kind of falls to the wayside and, uh, you know, falls on these private uh, non-governmental organizations to try and backfill that. Right. And I mean, we've been kind of focused on like the commodities and more food prices, but we're also seeing, you know, this high inflationary period, particularly in the U.S., but this is also happening on a global scale as well. Like there are a lot of nations around the world that are having remarkably high inflation compared to what they're used to. And so having these happen more or less at the same time, you know, somewhat staggered as far as beginning and hopefully ending. But like these two problems are going to pile on top of each other and everyone, I don't, you know, it doesn't even really matter how much money you make. Like when you go to the grocery store, you're going to notice when your grocery yeah. bill is 50%. Unless you're so wealthy more. that you don't go to the grocery store for yourself uh, <laughs> or like uh, you're a U.S. congressman or senator and <laughs> You've never set you haven't set foot in a store except for for a photo op, maybe. Um, right, right. But yeah. I mean, e even in those instances, like you're still going to notice it's not going to, you know, affect mm -hmm. your daily life if you're making 200, 400 grand a year. But at the same time, that's going to change your investment strategies. And, yeah. you know, the whole global financial system is going to be shaken, if not changed by these events. Well, it's funny you dropped that that two hundred to four hundred thousand dollar range because uh, I kid you not, this was not a satire article. But today I saw an article from I believe it was from Forbes uh, stating that basically like I, I don't remember the exact headline, but it was something to the tune of um, here's how inflation affects you if you make less than three hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> it's like that's that's their arbitrary uh, cutoff mark. And it's yeah, I mean, it's sad because obviously $300,000 a year for an individual, I believe, puts you in the top 1% of income earners. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Maybe I mean, not for a, per, per household, but for an individual. Well, yeah, I mean, does. for an individual income, that's definitely high income. And I mm -hmm. mean, for broader society, I believe the average income, I mean, even in the U.S., is somewhere in the neighborhood of like fifty to 60000 I don't even know. I think that's household. High. I think median household. individual income is somewhere around 30000 uh, 30, uh, US. That, that sounds about right. Yeah. But like when you, can, when you consider 300000 I mean, whether that's the household or an individual, like that's just a lot more money than is typically what people have, especially when it comes to, you know, the gas station, the grocery store, just general commodities that are consumed mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Well, and it's important to point out that a lot of this current crisis that we're experiencing, especially with regards to this inflationary environment, is not solely due to this Russia-Ukraine conflict by any means. This is, you know, this is caused by a variety of factors, and you may get some disagreement from experts in terms of which of these factors has what level of impact. However, this is the cause of some of the artificial slowdowns and shutdowns in our economy that were caused 
as a you know response to the pandemic when we had little information and we didn't know exactly how to handle it um virtually every economy in the world shut down to some degree or other that so that was one of the factors um so that un unplanned supply shock and then on top of that you have western governments in particular and japan as an outlier um the monetary expansion that we've seen occur uh many people have seen these charts uh at this point the m1 money supply of just how ludicrous it shoots up after uh, march of 2020 and um yeah that was essentially our federal reserve taking certain policy actions to expand liquidity to prevent a recession and that is something we're going to be talking about a little bit later here but um back to you know just this global commodity shortage which is caused by these you know aforementioned uh factors we are seeing it in so many sectors i mean like we could talk about the consumer price index to begin with yeah let's talk a little bit about that because like my understanding of the consumer price index is it's sort of the general i'll call it you know post in the ground that we use to gauge inflation over time and like clearly identify like recession periods or you know bull markets that kind of thing but at the same time the consumer price index lags behind the actual prices in the marketplace right it does it's not a very good predictor of the future necessarily and it it kind of allows it's 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 one of those statistics much like the unemployment numbers that we use the u6 unemployment that we've been using for the last uh, 20 years i believe a little over 20 years it's it's kind of a misrepresentation of statistics because it is comprised of a basket of commodities that is supposedly what the typical household consumes. But in a vast and diverse nation like the United States of 350 million plus people, can you really say that there is any effective basket of commodities that can adequately explain what an individual household's consumption may look like? I mean, absolutely not. And I mean, especially since like, you know, the dot coms of the early 2000s and the subprime real estate, you know, issues in the two in 2008. And like, you know, just recently, like the commodities that people use on a daily basis change like year over year. Really. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just think about how drastically our lives have changed in the last five years, 10 years, 15 years. You can go back any any one of those those number of periods and we lived in a vastly different world. We needed vastly different things in order to, you know, succeed. Like a smartphone may have been a luxury in 2006, but it's certainly not a luxury today. It's it's essential, I would But would yeah, argue. I mean, especially one of the key things that's kind of, you know, I've noticed over these past couple of years is just gas mm-hmm. and how much, you know, the average person versus individuals actually use gas because I mean, like we saw at the start of the pandemic, like due to lockdowns and more people going remote and just general lifestyle changes in relation to what was going on, like people started driving way less. And I believe like gas consumption was down like almost 30 or 40% for a short period there. Absolutely. And unfortunately, that's part of the reason why we're in the situation that we're in. Even though, like we were talking about earlier, the United States is pretty insulated from a lot of like relying heavily on this global supply. We we have imported, you know, we do import energy from abroad, um, though the reasons for that is, uh, you know, it's 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 questionable whether that's necessary to begin with. But it's also perhaps in part to preserve certain trade relationships and certain trade balances. Um, that was something that is taken into consideration. And I mean, we obviously spited our closest ally 
and closed largest trading partner, Canada, by shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline, though it would not have been producing for several years and it would not you know, save us from this current situation we're in. Um, fuel prices have a very clear impact on people directly. Everyone notices it. And like you said, um, now that the economy has started to pick back up, we've seen mass reopenings, even in states that had more restrictive policies throughout the lockdowns. Um, and just people are going back to normal, essentially. And they're going back to, right, it's it's bad timing because they're going back to normal right as they're experiencing these price increases. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, they're definitely feeling the sharpness of it, particularly now that people, you know, people at large are going back to some more resemblance of normalcy. But at the same time, like, we were seeing this throughout the pandemic as well. Like, I mean, I was looking at it just earlier today from the U.S. Uh, Energy Information Administration mm -hmm. actually put out statistics. And from December of 2019 to this past December of 2021, gas prices rose $1.20 per gallon. And that's that's pre any Ukraine-Russia conflict as well. And so, like, don't get me wrong, there's a substantial amount of price changes currently that's due to the Russia and Ukraine situation. Absolutely. And due to those global marketplace changes. But these prices, particularly gas and commodities, have been rising pretty steadily for at least a year, if not longer. They have. And that's one of those things that is not as much in the United States control as it was, say, 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, especially due to our heavy involvement in the Middle East, we had a lot of influence to exert over OPEC nations, um, given the military aid that we were providing some of them, given our occupations in certain other countries that were oil producers, um, Iraq being the uh, major one there. Um, given, given all of that, we, we had more leverage to play against Saudi Arabia, which is the largest uh, you know, OPEC-producing nation at that time. And our political influence on those countries has waned substantially over the last decade, especially. But really, it's been it's been going on for a little bit longer than that in terms of how how long it's been waning. We can't apply the sorts of pressure that we had in the past to essentially order them to drill more and pump more oil out. And that's so that's why, as you were saying, the prices increased during the pandemic was because they wanted to essentially profiteer off of the pandemic globally and knowing how uh, instrumental they would be in you know restoring economic balance over time and knowing that they were uh, going to be getting less in in sales if they pump more obviously the price is going to go down they're going to make less money well um, like you, like you were just talking about like it's been waning for some time but i think recent events particularly the situation in afghanistan and now the situation in ukraine is sort of exacerbating these issues to the point where you know, countries like Saudi Arabia and other OPEC countries aren't really seeing the benefit of siding with us. You know, like we've pulled out of Afghanistan. And so that's not a situation in which we're helping the diplomacy of that region. And so it's actually devolved to the point where Saudi Arabia is actually looking at selling some of their energy, particularly oil commodities, to China and the yuan instead of exclusively doing it in the dollar. Now, that's not completely changing the petroleum dollar standard but well yes i mean you really you're spot on with that um conclusion it is definitely a calculus on their part considering the botched afghanistan withdrawal considering that our allies perhaps more so than ever 
feel less protected by their alliance to the United States than ever. Um, because even if there was no explicit you know, mutual security agreement between us and Ukraine, this is one of those scenarios where 20, 30 years ago, you know, the United States would have been able to do something, perhaps. Um, it's obviously like it's challenging. You're talking about two nuclear armed states when you talk about the United States and Russia. Of course, you can't enter into conflict frivolously and you can't be careless in how you enter into conflict. And Ukraine is really shaping up to be potentially this large scale proxy stage of battle uh, for some time. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a really apt description, especially, I mean, you know, we've seen more of the proxy-esque situations, particularly in, you know, Middle East and the OPEC region yeah, Syria, of the world, and yeah. Syria in particular, but like, we're seeing Ukraine as sort of this new proxy between essentially the West and, you know, the East, and the East and the West look dramatically different than they did, you know, 100 years ago, but essentially the regimes are more or less the same. You have China and Russia and, you know, Japan and Korea on one side and you have, you know, the European nations, the United States and Canada on the other side. I mean, it's remarkably similar to the previous conflicts over the 1900s. I mean, it really is. It, the only difference is that China is not undergoing their own internal strife. So they would be a direct player and they would be the most influential player in one power block, mm -hmm. potentially. And Japan is no longer Imperial Japan, so they would be on our side. Well, right. Along with South Korea. Um, however, back to your earlier point about the threat of OPEC nations selling oil in anything other than the dollar. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. The fact that our purchasing power, the reason why we're able to buy such cheap goods from China, from all these countries that we buy imported goods from, is specifically because of the strength of the US dollar. And it's not called the petrodollar for no reason. I'm sure everybody's heard that term. And that is because OPEC nations sell oil exclusively in the US dollar. And you can speculate all you want about this, um, but I'll, all I will point out is that Saddam Hussein was a dictator of his country for many, many years with no US intervention. The only time the United States decided to intervene in Iraq was after he began selling oil in the euro. Yeah, and I mean, that in particular is a big part of the global economy, let's say, strain that we're seeing right now. I mean, when you can trade commodities, particularly energy, in exclusively the U.S. dollar, the U.S. is able to use the U.S. dollars in order to buy commodities from all these other nations because they need those dollars to buy, then buy the commodities that they need, and particularly energy in this discussion. But like, as you change that, and particularly when you know we're talking about this, Saudi Arabia is the most recent development in this area. Mm. But there are other nations that have been reviewing it and are definitely looking into it now as you know, not no longer being exclusive in the U.S. dollar. I mean, they will still trade in the U.S. dollar. Sure, sure. But the like the differences in that changes a lot of the global marketplace when the U.S. dollar doesn't hold that high level of essentially use and esteem that it has had for many years now. Yeah. And this is something that is not likely to materialize anytime, you know, in the immediate future, but it is something that we all need to be concerned about because if this global energy market is not powered by the US dollar, that that is going to have a bigger impact on every single one of our lives here in the United States than anything else that's occurred in the past several decades. That will be staggering because we have offshored all of 
you know, not all of, but a substantial amount of our domestic production capacity. So we are heavily reliant on imports from the rest of the world. So if you want to talk about inflation, you would see real out of control inflation if a, a new standard was adopted, whether that be the yuan, whether that be the euro, whether that be a, a sort of hybrid uh, system. And on the other hand, we talked about this uh, the other day. You also have the potential for poorer countries spearheading a movement to move away from centralized systems because just because of all this uh, in, instability and un, un, unexpected collapses that we've experienced over the last couple of decades in terms of the United, United States market specifically, uh, global confidence in the dollar has declined a lot. So you have certain countries considering like, what if we move to a sort of stable coin monetary uh, uh authority of sorts yeah i mean essentially it opens up the door for you know new conversations in this domain i mean over you know centuries historically speaking there has been you know a global standard currency we'll say in like you know historically speaking we had the dutch trading companies and then we had you know the british empire and the spanish empires and the colonial eras mm -hmm. into the united states in the more recent you know, i would say 100 200 years and then, you know, now we're in this era where we have other options such as Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies and stable coins that are out there that, you know, aren't controlled by any, you know, nation or empire or really faction at all. And so they can be universally traded between mm -hmm. countries like this. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think it's it's definitely too soon to draw any conclusions. Sure. But myself as a technical person, I'm very, you know, inspired and hopeful by some of the smaller nations and particularly like El Salvador yeah. labeled uh, Bitcoin as, you know, actual legal tender. And like that's huge for not only the popularity, but also the use of Bitcoin on a global scale. Well, and Bitcoin has taken quite a dive in value since El Salvador <laughs> adopted it. And shockingly, their president, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, so I'm not going to butcher it here. Um, he still has, uh, supposedly, you know, I don't know how legitimate the uh, results of, of this polling is, but he supposedly has pretty high approval ratings in his country. Like, not okay, I shouldn't say pretty high, like overwhelmingly high approval ratings. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, in particular, especially with just the recent events, events here of 2022, like, that kind of makes a lot of sense to me, especially with sort of, you know, the results that we're seeing from the economic sanctions on Russia. Like, if you have the freedom to use these other tenders that can't be used as, you know, sanction, you know, effectively instruments against you, then, you know, you have this sort of stable resource to go back to. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, discussions about hard currencies like gold and silver versus softer currencies like the dollar or the yuan or the euro. But at the same time, like you have this currency that's not well understood at large. I mean, technical people understand it better, but there's a lot of volatility in it due to the fact that it's new and not well understood. So I think it's very interesting to see how this is going to play out moving forward. But I'm very hopeful that, you know, these decentralized cryptocurrencies will actually be very useful and, you know, arguably essential in the global marketplace moving forward. Well, and this just goes back to the conversation we had last week with Will here is this there is this war going on behind the scenes of centralization versus decentralization centralization is of course the current means of operating globally and 
pretty much every in, in every level. Well, and I mean, has been for yeah, you know, a it, long, I mean, it's long for all time. of human history, essentially. Right. Um, you know, since we were living in caves and <laughs> we're nomadic nomadic tribes uh, hunting, it's it's we've we've moved towards centralized systems from monarchies to uh, empires, and it is it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out because. A trustless system that is perfectly auditable, which is what all cryptocurrency is, is a public ledger and a means of transferring arbitrary value, which at this point, all of our currency not being backed by any precious metals since 1972 is already kind of like in, a, in, a, in the philosophical sense, what, it, what is money actually worth? It is, it, it is a completely conceptual thing at this point, and it is largely ones and zeros in a computer. Well, yeah, but I mean, like the the value that we give to money, especially since like the Nixon days when we were officially taken off the gold standard, like it's much more of a softer psychological understanding in that the U.S. dollar holds value because, you know, U.S. citizens, but also the world at large believes that the U.S. will be around for a while. Like we do have very strong economy in many respects. We do have very strong military pretty much by every metric. Yeah. And like, so those are the aspects which gives the U S dollar its confidence and realistically its value in the long term. Yeah. That is going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the future, because you have a lot of discontent, uh, especially among the youth of this country with regards to our extremely high military spending, um, which of course I, I have my criticisms as well of how, the, how specifically the military spends money, of course, um, I, th I think it could be a lot more efficient. However, you know, there's this fundamental lack of understanding, and I don't know if this is a failure of the education system or what, that are of the reasons why our system is able to function the way it does, and even of the way that money is created in this system. Yeah, I mean, a big part of it is, uh, like, I would, I would argue that the biggest part is definitely education. And to some degree, you don't want the general populace to understand that thoroughly. And large part due you to- You mean the, from the government's perspective? From, from Particularly from the government, and in my case, the military's perspective. I've done substantial work in yeah. the DOD sphere. And so, Department of Defense, for those of you not acronym sufficient. <laughs> but, um, like, so you don't really, like, in a problem such as, like, the military-industrial complex and that, like, essentially, on some level, you just have to throw money at the problem. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a poor way of phrasing it. But at the same time, the idea is you have to research new things. Like you have to be on the cutting edge at all times. So there's going to be a lot of money wasted. And so there's a trade off there between it definitely, definitely could be run more efficiently. And I'll be the first to admit and say that it should be. Yeah. But at the same time, there are a lot of advantages that we as Americans have due to the fact that you know, the military and the government at large spends an incredible amount of money on research. Yes. And so, like, there's a lot of discussions about that, but the sheer lack of understanding, I think, is largely intentional, but also the fact that it's really difficult to get youth in particular interested in finances. And so when you start talking about the military and finances, you're going to lose even more interest than you had at the beginning. So to some degree, it's difficult to bring that into an education system. Well, and people are rightfully irate at all of the interventionist wars Absolutely. that we were not really consulted on or 
the populace was largely propagandized into supporting even the Iraq a- a invasion. At the time, op- there was overwhelming si- uh, support from the U.S. citizens uh, on both political parties uh, for that invasion. However, if you were to ask people that question now in light of all the information that's come out since, uh, I believe people overwhelmingly don't support uh, the Iraq invasion. Yeah, I mean, in particular with the Iraq one, I'd say that's spot on. And like, you know, I would say one of the best, one of the most eye-opening comparisons that you can draw in is particularly the OPEC region is the Iraq conflict that we were involved in there, but also the Afghanistan situation. Because, I mean, that kind of developed as we were growing up and, you know, is a little bit more recent than the Iraq situation. But even today, like, the vast majority of people supported that because we were there for clear reasons like terrorism, 9-11. Like, there were real issues in the Afghanistan area that the majority of people were on board with it. Now, how we handled it, how long we were there, all of those kinds of things, there's obviously a substantial debate over, and rightfully so particularly with the uh, how we actually pulled out of Afghanistan. Well, and, but, you know, if most people were aware of the fact that we were propping up brutal warlords in order to fight the Taliban, we were arming other warlords, other bad guys to fight the bad guys that we wanted taken out. And um, and the fact that, you know, we we had our soldiers essentially protecting all of the opium poppy fields that was then funneled to China, turned into fentanyl smuggled into Mexico and smuggled through our porous southern border. Like that that is heavily a factor that contributed in the crazy amount of opiate deaths that occur in this country. I mean that that was that was a substantial contributing factor for sure. Um I'm not convinced that that is the issue. And in particular Yeah, but do you think people would have been okay with the knowledge that we sort of we were in occupying a country and I think we're permitting that activity to occur. I think it's more important that they don't have to care. And so there's a lot of people who say, you know, like, or who are focused on the reason. They're mm. not interested in how it's going to happen. It's a different part of the world. And I think a lot of people understand that to some degree, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a situation. And, you know, the mean, like the end obviously doesn't justify the means. But at the same time, we don't have the luxury unless you are willing to send the United States military into armed conflict kind of thing. And so particularly with the Iraq versus Afghanistan comparison, like in Iraq, we were the offensive force. Yeah. And like almost exclusively in the U.S. military and in the Afghanistan situation, we were primarily a defensive force for our interests yes. and we armed an external offensive force. And so I think there's a disassociation that happens, particularly in those conflicts. And we're kind of seeing this to some degree with the Ukraine situation. I mean, you know, at large, the United States is obviously on the side of Ukraine in this conflict. But at the same time, I've never heard anyone say that we should send U.S. military over there. We're completely comfortable. Oh, I mean, believe me, the the neocon uh, faction... uh, within well, the I mean, government media is absolutely advocating for that. There's definitely dissenting opinions. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's one of the drawbacks of a free society is people are allowed to have sure. their own opinions, whether you disagree with them or whether they're just outright wrong and crazy. Like, I mean, that's just one of the drawbacks. Yeah. But at the same time, we're far more comfortable sending goods, services, munitions without actually directly being involved. 
So you have that kind of disconnect in, you know, you want to support this conflict, but what does that actually mean? You know what I mean? Well, and like we've been talking about this entire time, lack of education and lack of information is a major factor here. Um, Really interesting piece that was done by um, Sagar and Crystal of Breaking Points, um, released, I I believe, today, was, uh, so they put up a poll that was done by another another group, um, and this was done... uh, it was it was blindly distributed to two groups and one question was do you support a no-fly zone in ukraine and one the other question was phrased more accurately providing context and said do you support a no-fly zone in ukraine meaning that the united states would shoot down russian fighter planes over that territory potentially triggering war uh it literally shifted from the first question, do you support a no-fly zone, was 43% in support, uh, 35% um, unsure, and then the remainder uh, against. And it, it, the proportions completely swapped when you phrased the question differently. When you provided that context that, hey, do you understand what a no-fly zone is and what it means? And you know, I have felt the same way from when it was proposed when we were in Syria, because it would have meant the same thing. Russia's involvement in Syria would have meant potentially war with Russia if we were to enforce a no-fly zone in our involvement in the Syrian civil war. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, like, that's that's a key indication of education, not in particular, like, the education system, but, like, the education in respect to, like, informing the general populace and this new age of, you know, really weaponized propaganda that we have to deal with. Like, I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, most people got their news by watching an hour of TV during the evening hours or whenever they were available. Whereas these days we can hop online and, you know, process a wider variety of information much faster via social media, via, you know, trusted news outlets or independent news outlets these days that like it's, it's not as unified or as clear what the information is. And so it's much harder to like nail down an actual baseline understanding that individuals or even groups have in these areas. And so like with the Ukraine situation, it's interesting that poll in particular, like that just that experience of adding that context very dramatically changes people's opinions of it. Because like the first question, do you support a no fly zone? Well, yeah, it's an armed conflict. You don't want bomb bombs falling out of the sky. Like, that makes perfect sense to me of why the, you know, 45 or whatever percent of people would be interested in that. But at the same time, then you add the context of like, we would have to do it and potentially spark war. And, you know, adding the context actually causes you to think about it and be like, well, no, I'm not actually okay with it in that type of a situation. Mm -hmm. And so like this new age of education is really becoming much more, much more broader and ongoing education in in the terms of informed populace versus the traditional education systems that essentially were designed to give you a baseline of you know functioning knowledge well it's very interesting because um some of the topics that we're talking about in particular uh, especially you know economics and foreign policy and um, some of the higher level technology that we discuss on this show those are not subjects that are taught in high schools I mean, unless you are taking advanced courses. AP and IB courses they, are offered for the, some of these things. I but. mean, even I took some AP courses in high school and like 
even in my college courses, the vast majority of these topics are at best brought up, but yeah. they're not explained or dived into to any substantial degree. And like a big reason for that in part is due to the fact that it's ongoing and it's difficult to like do deep dives on some things like that, that are ongoing until Absolutely. after the fact you get, you know, more information comes out. You could do investigative journalism comes out and, you know, books are written and there's a lot more that you can kind of piece together a fuller picture. But at the same time, like, you know, there's a lot of topics, particularly on the technical side of things where you will hear the name of it, like machine learning, AI, neural networks. These are all like the media buzzwords, Web right? 3.0. Web 3.0, exactly. And like, you know, the new internet standard, they'll be brought up, but even at a college level, like you don't dive into these topics until that's like your main course of study. And no, so, and your like, out of date textbook probably has a couple paragraphs about some of these like key important developments. Right. And like in particular, pick particular, like machine learning is typically taught even at the college level up to bachelor's degree, I would say is taught to students as a black box like it's just this thing and you feed it data and it gives you some output and you don't actually dive into and learn how it works and the statistics and structures behind it and why it functions even within an engineering program typically even within engineering and so i mean there you are given the option to take like one or two classes but in order to really dive into these like higher level technical topics it's a graduate level course that wow. you have to take. And in large part, that's due to this idea that education is a general understanding. So like for myself in engineering courses, like I had to take, you know, mechanical engineering courses and general system design courses. And there's coding courses and all this kind of object oriented, different languages, variety of different aspects. And so when you're doing this like broad kind of almost, you know, scattershot approach to education, you can't really dive in too deep into any one topic without giving up another topic. Yeah. And so something like neural networks and machine learning is so targeted, but also so new that it's not well understood. It's not seen as necessary for a baseline understanding. Like if you're taught these ideas as a black box, like you can use them you just won't be able to actually tailor it and get the full benefit out of it, which is why then you have to go into these higher level areas where, you know, graduate school, that kind of thing. And I think the same is true, particularly in finance, especially as we're discussing, you know, a little bit earlier. And also this episode is like interest rates and yeah. the Fed's role and how money is actually used and created is not well understood. Well, so that's what I wanted to mention is even as far as the way microeconomics and macroeconomics are taught at the undergraduate level. I didn't spend a lot of time in college, but I spent enough time in college to have gone through uh, most of my uh, economics courses. And it's, it's taught very poorly. It's taught purely from a theoretical standpoint with very little uh, applicable case studies observed until you reach, like you're talking about that graduate level study. But how many people are going into graduate level economics? You know, not very many. 
well, obviously, I, unless they want to work in public policy. I think that's one big problem, and particularly here in the United States with like the debt crisis. In particular, I'm referring to the student loan debt crisis at mm-hmm. the moment, and like how expensive it is to go to college. And like this is one aspect where I think the Europeans definitely have a leg up on us in you know free education, essentially, in that like as you graduate from high school, even if you don't need a college degree or whatever to do your profession or your career like it is essential in this day and age to continuously educate yourself whether that be you know absolutely couple hours a week where you know you read new articles and get up to speed on some new thing that you don't understand or you know advance yourself in an area where you are fairly well read like that's something that's not traditional from our own perspective here in the states but is absolutely essential, especially with technology increasing and finances becoming more complex. Essential if you really want to thrive. You can absolutely get by on just, I mean, and this is why there is so much incompetence at middle and even certain higher levels within the private sector and within government is because people acquired a certain level of credentials and kind of failed upwards in their careers. And uh, there's a lot of people that have done that. And we're really facing the impact of this large number of people that are perhaps uh, in over their heads. Yeah. I mean, to some degree, I mean, there's just so much going on in life. I mean, that's effectively why we created this show is because there's just so much information out there. And in this day and age, everybody's got, you know, a training course or their own material that they're putting out that you can pay for and purchase content from them. And like, there's a lot of good information that can be gathered there, but most people, myself included, don't have unlimited discretionary income to just buy whatever we want and spend time on it. Like there's just not enough time in the day for that. And so to some degree, you do just kind of have to turn a blind eye to a lot of these aspects and just accept that other people hopefully are handling it kind of well and i wonder where we end up in the future with all of this because as we progress as a society as our technology as all these various elements of our society advance um it the base level of information you need to in order and training you need in order to be able to function within a certain role keeps increasing i i remember noticing this uh when i was studying for uh comptia's network plus and uh security plus exams uh some years back I was looking at the level of content that had been added since the the 90s and I was just thinking to myself I was like man how easy would it have been to get into the networking profession in the early 90s I was like I only needed to know this much now I need to know you know substantially more information because of all I have to learn from the beginning every single development and stage that this technology went through in that process and that's kind of where we're at and I wonder where we end up in the future with that with people already being so highly specialized, but needing to become even more specialized, are we going to see people having to essentially train until they're 30 years old, 32 years old before they can finally enter their professions? I mean, already you see that in high level, like physicians and whatnot are not actually practicing medicine in their field until after eight years of med school and a four-year residency and a year or two fellowship. Well, so yes and no (laughs) would be my response to that. In particular, your comment just now on residency, particularly for physicians. So a massive aspect of college, even at the undergraduate level, is working experience. And typically we refer to them as like internships. 
and like nobody wants an unpaid internships. You want one where you're going to be paid some wage, right? Of course. But at the same time, the benefit you're getting is the work experience because like you can learn all the background knowledge, you know, that's out there theoretically and teach yourself till your 30s, 40s even and still not know everything there is to know. But getting out in industry, it like no matter if that's just a couple hours over a summer break kind of thing or whether that's, you know, take a year off and do a full co-op with one or two classes sprinkled in, like getting out into industry is how you identify while working those areas that you need to improve upon. And in particular with tech, like you mentioned with the uh, CompTIA uh, certifications, like there's so many certifications out there right now that like you would have to spend, you know, a couple of months studying for each one. And every single year, those are updated with new standards. Mm -hmm. So like for me to switch to a different aspect of technology that I'm, you know, haven't been working in for several years, like that's a several month long reevaluation process and bringing sure. myself back up to speed. Like I have, I have been trained and you know, has extensively educated in engineering, but you know, I'm not fully up to speed on all the nuances of electrical engineering. I have essentially all the background, particularly because I'm a software computer engineer, but like, you know, when it comes to renewable energy versus fossil fuels, there's a lot of nuances to that that I'm not current on, in particular, like Tesla's battery improvements. Like that's changed a lot over the past like two or three years, let alone a decade. Well, and that information is also probably proprietary, right? To some degree. And so that gets into sort of a gray area, particularly in technology, but also manufacturing in that patents and copyrights becomes a weird kind of tandem with educational knowledge because it's it is not easy but it's also not impossible to reverse engineer a patent yeah and create something similar now that being said typically a company won't put the patent out until they've established themselves in the market and so that way you know people know that they're the ones that created it and essentially have the best version of it right yeah but then once that information is out there and, you know, more widely known or, for example, engineers leave Tesla, just, you know, theoretical and like they can take that knowledge with them. And that's confidential to some degree. But recreating a similar battery is not directly a breach of their agreement necessarily. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we will have to have an entire conversation on intellectual property patents and actually. I believe I, I can have a, an IP lawyer come in and have a conversation with us about that. That's definitely worthy of its own entire conversation because it's, it's such a huge impact on how we develop and even goes back to what we were just talking about earlier with regards to the U.S.'s defense spending and why we have to do that to a degree, as you argue, because we're at the forefront. We don't have the luxury of operating as China does and just stealing our intellectual property and kind of reverse engineering it and running from there. Um, that's just the first mover uh, problem kind of within a, within a space or a new development. But something that is not proprietary information and uh, should be widely known by everybody is kind of how, how our monetary system works. It's really not that scary. I think people are intimidated by understanding it but realistically you know it, it could be explained i believe it, sh it could be explained to a high schooler no problem i i think 
like definitely in like the junior senior level yeah. of high schooler or most or maybe not all but yeah but in particular like any recent high school graduates could definitely be brought up to speed i mean i think the biggest hurdle just for myself i mean as a technological person who's you know substantial college education the actual linguistics of it really like posed an initial hurdle for me and so i kind of kept putting it off for you know a number of years actually till more recently and so I was wondering if you can kind of walk us through, in particular, the Fed's latest interest rate hikes. I mean, they say 25 basis points, which for those listeners, basis points is uh, 25 basis points is a quarter of 1% on the interest rate. Hikes. Yeah, just another example of that jargon that kind of is off-putting to people when trying to understand financial terminology and economics terminology. And I mean, every every industry kind of has this, but yeah. Um, so. When I guess I should go back a little bit first and say, talk about how you have two, our government and the Federal Reserve, which is not a part of our government, uh, have two, those are two sides of the coin in terms of how we manage our economy. The economy is just being this abstract concept of human behavior and economic activity and the way it intertwines. But you have the fiscal policy side, and that is government spending, that is taxation, that is debt. That's not what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the monetary side, which is governed by any central monetary authority, which in the case of the United States is the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve has recently taken action to raise interest rates for the first time since the pandemic began. Um, the reason why this is significant is because if you're like a lot of people, you've been watching the stock market and all the craziness going on over the last two years and wondering why... I mean, maybe you're very happy about it, especially, you know, a lot of people are quite happy about it, um, but it didn't make a lot of sense. If you were looking at it practically and you were saying, you know, why is company X worth double what it was pre-pandemic when their sales have maybe have improved since pre-pandemic, but by like 10%, why are they worth double that? Why are there some companies, uh, Crocs is my favorite example of this is at one point was worth like 13 times what they were pre-pandemic. And of course their sales improve when people are working from home, but it's one of those things where it's just truly absurd when you look at these valuations and you say, this makes no sense to a Warren Buffett style, you know, traditional value investor or fundamentals investor. Um, none of it made sense. And the reason for this stock market craziness was essentially the Federal Reserve. In an effort to prevent a recession after our shutdowns of the economy in the early stages of the pandemic, the Federal Reserve um, took a couple policy actions, and they really only have a few policy actions that they can take. They can change bank reserve and capital requirements. They can um, purchase assets, namely uh, government bonds is typically what central banks will purchase. They will purchase or sell uh, government bonds to impact the market that way, and they can also adjust interest rates which they, what they are, the rate that they are adjusting is the rate that commercial banks have to pay the Fed for borrowed money. So that is not the rates that you and I pay. Right. So the, the Fed itself doesn't really create money. It's no. these commercial banks that are essentially creating money and loaning it out to consumers, whether that be for, you know, leverage in a market account or whether that, you know, for the broader society is your home loan or your auto loan. And in particular for the United States, 
student loans are affected heavily by this. That's correct. I mean, maybe you've never asked yourself this question, but when you go get that $300,000 mortgage from your bank, have you ever wondered, where is this money coming from? Well, where it's coming from is the bank is creating this money. <laughs> In that moment, when they're issuing that loan to you, they are creating that money. And that is not money that existed previously in the economy. And there are certain limitations that exist on how much money banks can create. And, it, you know, and they, they have various risk calculations that they make internally. And there's also certain uh, regulations that we have added that were necessary. I mean, the Dodd-Frank Act, which, you know, many people may have heard of, if you've, if you've, especially if you've watched documentaries on the 2008 Great Financial Collapse, um, you would have heard of the Dodd-Frank Act reforms. and those significantly increase the reporting requirements for banks in terms of how they handle their liquidity and their assets. So in particular, I think it's uh, you know, a good time to talk about that 2008 subprime mortgage yeah. time period because that was essentially the first period and essentially has started this era of extremely low interest rates that we've been in for quite a few years now. Yeah, so that was after after the great financial collapse of 2008 was the first time that United States um that the Fed's uh the, that the federal funds rate hit zero was uh in the aftermath of that as a response to that. We also took on unprecedented at the time it was called and this is one of those things that I hate in terms of the naming of this terminology. It's intentionally done so so that people don't ask questions or don't understand what it means, but the Federal Reserve called it quantitative easing, which is a really nice euphemism for we're effectively, you know, we're purchasing toxic assets from the banks and we're suppressing bond yields and we're enabling the creation of more money. We're trying to stay in. Of course, the rationale behind it is perhaps a good thing. We were coming out of a recession. Granted, this was a recession that was the cause of failures on not just one party, but a number of parties. Um, Really, that's one of those details that is kind of overlooked when talking about the 2008 recession is it was not just the greedy bankers, absolutely greedy bankers capitalized on it and did not pay consequences for it. And that's one of the things that's interesting in terms of what we're experiencing right now is arguably some of the systemic risk that we face right now is because of the lack of government action that was taken in the aftermath of 2008. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. And like we kind of mentioned a little bit before is like the, you know, the senators and politicians who are paid, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars being able to make money on the stock market and other influences that they have, you know, essentially insider knowledge of is a big area of contention. And particularly like, you know, the rhetoric around this from the political standpoint is, you know, all we have to do is, you know, disclose the trades that we're making. And then, you know, now people are getting more accustomed to the idea of, no, that's not okay. If I, as a civilian, were to do that, I would be heavily, heavily penalized, fined. Oh, and we'd may even, prison. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. straight up see prison time, depending yeah. on the severity of it. Yeah, inserted trading is a, is a federal crime that uh, sees prison time. And um, obviously, yeah, like you're saying, um, Members of Congress, their families are exempted from these insider trading laws, essentially. And so has previously the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and staff. Um, however, that has recently changed. So the Federal Reserve, due to certain uh, political pressure, has uh, drawn back their policy of reporting on certain trades and has outright banned um, members of the Federal Reserve from making certain types of trades, 
we will see if that extends to Congress as well. I think a lot of people want to see that happen because you don't want to see public servants profiteering off privileged information. Right. And I mean, in particular, when it comes to, you know, Congress and especially just the federal level at large, like you're a public servant and your job is to serve the general populace, not profit off of the knowledge that you happen to gain in your position. Absolutely. I mean, public service, um, you know, my opinion is that if it comes with some sacrifice, that's what it means. You, you should not engage in that in seeking those positions if you are not you know, ready to accept some level of sacrifice to do that. And sadly, uh, you know, those positions have become so influential and have become a gateway into high paying positions after retirement from politics. And unfortunately, that's just what we've seen is uh, people going into, cable, you know, high paid cable news anchors or into high paid consulting gigs or something of that nature afterwards, board, corporate board positions. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some conflict of interest, particularly at the federal level. But I want to get back to these Fed interest rates and really what the short term and also the long term effects that we're going to kind of see from this. are. Yeah, absolutely. So we've covered what the actions the Federal Reserve can take. But like you said, Glenn, earlier, consumer price index is a lagging indicator. So what we were getting at earlier with regards to CPI being usable by politicians to kind of misrepresent what's actually happening. What happened essentially when inflation first started to rise, and mind you, many people were sounding the alarm bells. Like These are more fringe voices, not really mainstream voices. Largely people in independent media and kind of more fringe uh, blogs and whatnot were talking about the risk of future inflation. I myself was talking about it at that time and writing about it. Um, But we looked like we were crazy people uh, because this is I'm talking around March to summer of 2021. And around that time, the economy was really looking like it was going to, it was picking back up major steam. You know, things like were looking good. Uh, vaccines had been released. It was looking like COVID was going to be a less serious concern than it had been in the prior year. And you had um, all of this economic optimism and people had been sitting on a cushion of savings that they'd accumulated from not spending money, not going out the way they were, from working at home, from not driving as much, most people anyway. Uh, within the economy, especially highly paid people within the information sector of our economy. Yeah, I mean, I would just say particularly just those industries in which you don't necessarily have to be, you know, at your job, whereas like, you know, to some degree, factory workers were reduced and weren't able to do as much production. But at the same time, the factories were largely open throughout the majority of this time period. And like, you know, especially in 2021, like, at large, people were going back to the office and those people that, you know, didn't need to and could work remote were essentially exactly where they were throughout the majority of these past few years. And so we did see this like big, you know, essentially bull rush last year where, you know, this new confidence and return to normalcy kind of like started building up and affecting the markets, but also prices. But we also did still see and kind of really get a handle on more of these supply chain issues that we're still having this year as well. Absolutely. And that's this all ties in together. You have all of this excess demand that we started to see spring back into action from like around last March into last summer. That really caused an impact on the already strained to recover supply chain that was still in the process of trying to recover. And, you know, one thing that um, I don't want to downplay, you know, the number of, of fatalities that were caused by the, uh, the virus. However, the 
another significant factor that people don't really consider other than the number of people that we lost is the number of people that chose to retire due to the pandemic. Five million people retired. Um, An absolute record number of retirements occurred in the first year of the pandemic. And I, I think that was 3.5 million higher than estimated, if, I, if my numbers are correct on that. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely sounds as an accurate estimate. I have to check the numbers myself. But um, I mean, it's definitely kind of what we're seeing and like what uh, the media likes to talk about, whether that be independent or, you know, more traditional media outlets of this, you know, great resignation period of like, you know, there's a substantial amount of people, like you're saying, who are retiring far more than we've really ever seen before. And at the same time, a lot of people were taking advantage of this pandemic era period in order to switch positions. Maybe that was, you know due to other lifestyle changes and you know they weren't happy with their job oh absolutely having to watch kids uh, you know having to assist with education for kids in the home and you know there's a lot of factors people's health concerns people who are immunocompromised not being able to return fully to work um yeah all of this kind of plays into this really great transition in our economy and how this relates to interest rates and why they're being raised right now is, and this is the criticism of the Fed, is that should this action have been taken last March to last summer, sometime around that period, I was advocating for this. I was saying, you have to steadily raise interest rates and stop this asset purchasing and stop the stock market from going out of control. Not that I want to see the stock market fail in my own country, of course, but these artificial ridiculous valuations that you started to see were concerning because it also really changed the landscape of who owns what in this country. You know, you had financiers and investment firms, family offices, hedge funds, all of these various institutions, private equity firms. You had them having way more access to capital than they previously had. And you had ordinary people, uh, or even even if you were middle income or higher income, having maybe a little bit more access to, uh, to capital uh, through the financial system, but not nearly on the level of these investment management firms. Well, in particular, that's one of the interesting things going on right now, particularly with this, you know, extremely high inflation that we've been seeing, which is likely even higher than, you know, we're being informed about due to the consumer price index. But along with that, the Fed increasing these baseline interest rates for the banks, like that's increasing the cost of getting a loan for a car and a house and particularly student loans here in the U.S., but these affect variable interest rate loans the most, whereas like new fixed loans will be impacted by yes. this. But if you are already if you are somebody who is already in position, already had a 30 year fixed rate mortgage, you're fine. You, yeah. I mean, you're not really worried about this. This inflation kind of benefits you, frankly. Well, yeah, absolutely. Especially the, you know, to some degree, the fact that your interest rate is fixed and mm-hmm. it's not going to change as a result of this. But at the same time, one of the things that I want to point out is this time period in particular, it's very beneficial to anyone who has assets. Yes. Whereas, you well, know, somebody who is leveraged for assets. Well, so who has assets in particular, but also if you have been leveraged previously, yes, the more leverage you could take advantage of, the more you benefited from these lower interest rates. From these lower interest rates and from the ongoing inflation that's going on. And that's why you have this dual economy of sorts. You have lower income people and younger people in particular who are extremely harmed by this current situation. And then you have people who are middle income or higher income and 
you know, own real estate and are in their 40s or 50s or 60s, they are in a much better situation from this. And many of them, in fact, benefit greatly from inflation because while, yes, they, their short term, you know, some of their immediate costs will increase depending on how far they were leveraged. Like I'm talking somebody who's leveraged, who owns a primary home and owns, you know, a second piece of real estate, say, as, and they keep that as a, as a rental property. Those people are going to be doing extremely well from this because their cost to service their debt, assuming it's fixed rate, is going to be extremely low. Right. Yeah. I mean, like effectively, they can price in the costs from this inflation and of the new interest rates because that's what, you know, the markets around them are doing due to, you know, people still buying new houses. People always need houses kind of a conversation. But at the same time, inflation essentially makes your debt cost less, particularly if you have assets and like these assets accumulate value and don't lose value due to inflation, whereas inflation particularly affects the your your available cash or you know monetary resources to spend. Absolutely. And as we're talking about this, you know, some of you may have some alarm bells going off in your head um, about who benefits the most from this inflation. Well, the US government does. The US government has obviously an extreme spending problem. I'm sure a lot of you have turned on that, uh, that gone, gone to that website of the U.S. national debt clock uh, and just seeing how, how much our debt and our deficit has grown. And for most of us, our entire lives. I mean, the last time the budget was balanced was uh, under Clinton, um, uh, roughly around the, around the time we were born. Yeah, basically. around the 90s. Yeah, man. so <laughs> it's, it's been a long time. We've only seen a country with a spending problem, essentially. And I'm not going to get into the theoretical debt to GDP ratios that can be sustained and whatnot right now. But bottom line is the national debt also gets devalued as our currency gets devalued. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, this is definitely at the governmental level, this is a bipartisan problem. Like, you know, both Republicans and Democrats for as far as I can remember, and I'm, you know, basing this off of some research as well that like likely even further into the past, like, there's been a lot of spending, Absolutely. especially at the federal level. And so periods of high inflation like this particularly benefit the government in being able to pay off that national debt essentially for cheaper. Well, it lets them kick the can down the road further because, you know, many people in our generation and in Gen Z and, you know, future generations will come to recognize uh, they don't have a lot. We don't have a lot of confidence in the reality that Social Security would, will exist in any in in the form it currently does at the very least uh, by the time we're actually reaching retirement age uh, it's it's widely understood that social security is a ponzi scheme that requires continual growth of the population and of the economy in order to sustain itself and that is not happening anymore in western developed countries and in the east as well in developed countries japan and korea um populations are are contracting you know the uh, the birth rates have dropped um, we have aging populations and we have a smaller workforce. And really, this is one of those things that policymakers try to correct, correct with immigration. But the levels of immigration that you would have to have in order to even facilitate that are astronomical. Well, and at the same time, this isn't exclusively, you know, the problem of any one nation. It's I mean, we're seeing it particularly due to, you know, recent generations in particular. But this is essentially happening 
in large part around the whole world. I mean, there are nations in Europe as well who've started to notice this, you know, essentially to some degree, it's a social transition from, you know, the days of, you know, the older um, United States mindset of, you know, the farmhouse, you know, have, you know, six to 10 kids wasn't all that uncommon. Whereas, you know, these days it's becoming more and more common to have, you know, less than five kids, sometimes only one or oh, two kids. Oh, I mean, kids. the average average uh, in Western developed nations, uh, developed as we call them, uh, nations is, I mean, it's it's well below replacement rate. Uh, some, some countries are worse than others. I mean, you have Scandi- certain Scandinavian countries, I don't recall which one, um, is literally putting out advertising. The government is putting out advertising, encouraging young couples to go on vacation because they did a study that found that Young people are more likely to conceive a child when they go on vacation. <laughs> it's like they're like when your government is telling you like, "Hey, go go have kids, please. Like, go on vacation and get frisky." Um, like it's that that's, that's at the very least that's an indication of a problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is a problem, and you know, people have varying opinions on this. A lot of people are absolute cynics and believe that. Well, you know, I've I've heard a, a number of very intelligent people say, "Well, I don't want to have kids because." It's I I'm concerned about the environment. I'm concerned about the future of the environment. Well, yeah, I think that's a transition that's kind of been happening more recently. Is I mean, you know, over the past couple of decades, I heard so much talk, especially at the intellectual levels, in particular in university, but also at large, of like this, you know, worry of overpopulation. We're overpopulating the planet, and. In some respects, there's some truth to that. But over the large part, there's still a lot of room on this planet. But at the same time, the offset there becomes, you know, what can we make up for in technology? Because these new technologies that we're developing, for one, we don't really understand them that well until we finish researching and actually developing them and see what they can do. I mean, in particular, the Internet. Like that made the world much smaller in that we can, you know, converse with you from all over the world, wherever you are. But at the same time, the world didn't actually lose any landmass. And, you know, that's a weird concept to consider. No, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm losing it right now because I remember, <laughs> I think it was Paul Krugman, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist uh, said at the, uh, I, I apologize to Paul Krugman if it was somebody else, but I'm 90, 95% sure it was Paul Krugman. Um, he said something like, in a decade's time, we'll find that the internet was no more revolutionary than the fax machine. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this was in the early 90s. <laughs> this was said. Well, and, right. Uh, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, that's a perfect example of like the early 90s, even the early 2000s. Like, you could never have envisioned yeah. what the internet has become now, and it's yeah. still not done evolving. No, no, we still don't know the lengths that that connectivity can facilitate and what it what what it can create um yeah it's absolutely mind-boggling the fact that we have we have no great way of predicting what sorts of technological advances and what impact they will have yes we can talk about some of the theoretical stuff in terms of where are we going to be where do we estimate we're going to be in terms of processing and computational power and memory and battery technology within x number of years but there are any number of breakthroughs that could happen that could absolutely revolutionize our understanding of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like those are going to have, you know, completely unknown impacts and, you know, we can speculate on them essentially until they actually, you know, arrive. 
but like quantum computing's a new recent example that's already made big waves in optimization and logistical type situations but we have no real grasp of what that means from you know our real understanding of physics like we're still understanding physics at a quantum level let alone what we can do with that from a quantum computing or application standpoint so if there's any of these areas that you're interested in we can do a deep dive you know I know people in the technical field, you know, people in manufacturing, you know, industry and finance as well. You know, if there's anything like this that you're interested in, feel free to let us know. That'd be great feedback for us to have. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is, that is one of the things that, one of the reasons why I reached out to Glenn and we decided to start this show was because I had a number of people reaching out to me for answers for, on some of these topics. Whenever something major would happen in the world, whenever something that was not widely understood would occur, um, you know, there has been this move towards independent media sources and it's been great. Um, of course it's been bad as well in certain situations. A lot of people have risen to prominence within the, within the alternative, uh, independent media scene who are propagating a lot of misinformation and a lot of lies. Well, yeah, I mean, whether intentional or unintentional, it's just important to recognize the agenda that, the provider of that information has and so particularly in our case like we're just essentially trying to provide you with information and we have our areas of expertise that we're very knowledgeable about and i love talking about and sharing that with as many people as i possibly can and it's not taught well enough i think absolutely and we definitely are sharing our opinions here a lot but we try to be explicitly clear when we are sharing our opinions versus when we're describing, you know, how a system operates or how like something that is factual. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And like one of the things that, you know, me and you have noticed just in these past couple episodes is like we try and point out what's explicitly our opinion and what's a conceptualization or speculation on trends and concepts that we're seeing. Because, you know, as much as you study something, none of that is, you know, essentially set in stone. So many different variables are changing over time. And so, you know, the best we can do is point out our opinions and do to the best of our ability, explain what we understand about these concepts. Sure. And that's what we're doing here is we're having a conversation. This is not a lecture series. If we want to make a lecture series, it would look completely different. We are, we are doing a lot of pondering. We're doing a lot of thinking in real time about some of these concepts ourselves. And we have a little bit of prep, you know, we, we do have plenty of conversations, you know, as colleagues, um, with other people as well um but yeah in its entirety this is this is a collective learning process of sorts for all of us and we'd like for you to participate in that as well any of our listeners who like glenn said are interested in hearing about a particular subject if, if it's within one of our areas of expertise or we know an expert in that field who we can have on as a guest um and it could be a learning experience for us too that's exactly what we want to do here yeah absolutely and like like and subscribe. Let us know if there's anything you'd like us to do a deep dive in or something we've brought up that you know you didn't felt like you understood or would like more information on. I'd be more than happy to do that in the tech space. I know you'd love to do that on some of the financial sector as well, in particular with the Fed and financial policies. But um, you know, this is very much a uh, more musing and speculating and concepting what we're seeing and what's going on. And if, you know, if, I hesitate to say this, 
But if you're interested in a lecture on certain topics, we're going to have to get some whiteboards and uh, workshop that a bit. But yeah, I would we not do. Be opposed. We, I mean, this we're still in the very early stages of this is episode four. And uh, we we don't know what we're doing. We we just started trying to figure this out like a few weeks ago. <laughs> so um, we definitely plan to be equipped to be able to put graphics up on the screen as we're we're talking about this in real time. We're going to be changing our setup a little bit in the near future um, and just have that capability to be able to put up data for you to look at in real time. Um, so you don't have to be, uh, you know, and we, we might start including sources in our, in the video descriptions and whatnot, just to provide that context so that you have that understanding that we're not just pulling most of the, you know, we're not just pulling numbers yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. This isn't out of thin air. Yeah. We do research. We're constantly sending stuff to each other, bringing yeah. each other up to speed on what we're seeing and talking about and kind of workshopping this. But we very much like this kind of a fluid conversational setup. So let us know any thoughts or opinions you have on that. And uh, thanks for listening. This has been Esoteric Artifacts on YouTube, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at the moment, as well as Google Podcasts. Um, let us know, though, if there's any other platforms you'd like to see us on. Thanks.